Welcome to Everyday Therapist. I'm Rich from the UK. And I'm Cody from the United States. Before we jump in, we just want to say that this podcast does not constitute therapeutic advice. All right. Well, welcome back for our second episode. Rich, how you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. I'm a little bit more a little bit more relaxed than last week. So see it's seven o'clock here to see the kind of it's gone dark outside because it's autumn, so everything's slowing down a little bit. I've been out on my bike this afternoon, so uh, yeah, a little bit more relaxed than last week. How about you? Yeah, I'm I'm doing good, thanks. It's um yeah, it also gets dark here early, but currently it's it's noon, so we're in in uh, pretty bright times. We actually just yesterday we had a uh, a solar eclipse out here oh. where I live. And so uh, that was kind of fun to, to put on the, the fun little glasses and go out and check out the solar eclipse a little bit. But uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing good, and I'm I'm excited to get into our into our second episode here. From the conversations that I've had, it seems like um, it seems like people have enjoyed the first episode so far, and it's yes. been kind of fun to have ongoing conversations. Mm-hmm. So how how are you feeling about diving into our second one here? Yeah, all good, and I probably repeating what I said last week, which I've I've not prepared too much. I've had the same experience actually that as soon as I try and prepare for something, uh my mind kind of blanks out a little bit. So, you know, I've done, done a little bit of thinking about it. Um and we've discussed the rough format, but we've also discussed the the, the, the sort of almost certainty that it's not gonna follow the format. So it could go up in any direction. Yeah, yeah, I think tangents tangents are fun and, and, and could be good, and maybe sometimes that would be the most interesting episodes for sure. Uh, one thing that I thought could be a little bit fun is um, is to bring out our own humanness in all of this. I think that we want to be able to connect with people that way, and, and part of this is to promote conversations about mental health and, and that we're all human. And so I thought it may be fun to just kind of talk about things that we learned real quick, just from the first episode to now and, and things that we want to change. Are, are you okay with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So, so one of the things that I, um, in the first episode, I kind of thought, well, this it's a mental health podcast. I'm going to talk about my mental health and I'm going to be vulnerable. Uh, you know, I'm going to be as truthful uh, as I can be, and I'm going to say I'm going to talk about my experience. And then we finished the podcast, and it's like, great, we've done it. And then afterwards, and certainly the next morning, I'm thinking, have I shared too much? Have I said too much? Have I talked too much? And so, of course, as soon as I'm having any uh, crisis like that, I go and speak to my wife, and I say, you know done this podcast you know do you think i've spoken too much and she's like yeah for god's sake it's a podcast it's like that's what you're supposed to do talk okay so (laughs) so that's that so i can go okay fair enough i've talked but that's okay so then there was this sort of this whole thing about vulnerability um and then and then this sort of line between vulnerability and oversharing and i think i mentioned a couple of times about conversations that I might try and have with people or conversations that I have had with people and whether it's appropriate to have those conversations you know what I've used this word context what's the context and I I've been thinking about that a lot and I don't quite know what the line is you know 
um, this oversharing thing. And then somebody popped into my head about three or four years ago. I listened to a audio book by Brené Brown. Do you know Brené Brown? Yeah, yeah. Brené's pretty pretty popular over here. Okay. Yeah, she is over here, I think, as well. And she, I mean, that's exactly what she talks about. She says she's a, a shame researcher or something, and she has this term shame hangover, which I think I experienced some of that after doing the podcast. It's like, oh, my God, you know, I've, I've, I've shared all this stuff about myself. So I was thinking about that. Um, actually, um, I actually wrote down a little quote that she said, which is a lot of times we share too much information as a way to protect us from vulnerability. Hmm. And I thought... Am I, you know, have I done that? Whether I did it on the podcast, I'm not too sure. I think I might have done it in college a couple of times. And and, it, and I'm sort of thinking back to conversations I've had at college, for instance, and thinking, you know, I don't know quite what the line is. So that's something that I've been thinking about a lot. So, and I think I'll probably be saying this quite a lot going forward. I don't have any answers. It's just something that I've started to, to think about. So I'd, I'd be interested if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, and, and you and I have talked just a little bit about it. And I, I generally think that the sharing is, is a positive thing. And like we've talked about that we want this show to be is something that connects people. Um, certainly, I think that it's connected you and I, um, in, in ways that we didn't even know could be. So maybe, I don't know, three weeks ago. And I think that for me, I would like to share that with, with anybody else. And sometimes vulnerability is, although scary, uh, is maybe the best way to actually connect. Um, and so I, I admired how much you shared in our first episode and, the the feedback that I've gotten is from people who have listened is uh, is that they really liked it and that they they enjoyed that. But I have the same questions that you do: is how much do we want to share on this podcast, and how much do we do we not want to share? And um, it is it is kind of a funny thing because yeah, it's just you and I, and and <laughs> we're just talking. Uh, we have nobody else to fill the space of this podcast. It's just whatever comes out of our mouth. And and to be quite frank. Uh, we do have somewhat of an outline, but like, I don't know what I'm going to say in two minutes from now. And it might be something that I'm unprepared for, yeah. um, but it might just come out knowing that we have to fill the space. And so I, I resonate with some of those, so some of those fears, but I'm hoping that that's what connects to people. Yeah. It's something that Brené Brown talks about this again, which is, um, I don't have a quote, but she, she sort of talks about one of the things about vulnerability is is kind of risk taking and you know and that might not necessarily be some huge risk or huge thing that you're gonna embark on it could be um going to work and having conversations with people going to a meeting um how you interact with you your friends and family it's like you you don't i mean thankfully we don't usually overthink it too much but you don't know what's going to happen it's kind of a risk every time you have a conversation in some sense it's, it's a risk um but yeah that oversharing thing is is really it's on my mind quite a lot um th there's one more thing um a little quote that i wrote and she she said um well it's two actually share yourself to teach not to heal mm. so i thought that was quite an interesting one uh, which which i've been thinking about and then um don't share to meet unmet needs 
And uh, I know in the context of college as well, it's like, I've never had therapy. Well, I had a very, very brief stint of psychotherapy, which I'd be happy to talk about when I was 21. Um, I almost don't count it. it. It's so far in the past. I, I can't even really remember what happened there. Um, but I feel when I'm in that uh, counseling college and people, we do listening skills, obviously. Um, and it's almost palpable the sense of i want to share you know it's almost like there's the, the potential for a load of stuff to sort of flood out of me and i'm like hang on a minute you know keep the brakes on this if this is a it's a bloody college course <laughs> <Not Right. out. laughs> um, but on the other hand if, you, if i flip it around the other way um when i'm listening to people it's um you know even though it can be about some pretty dark stuff or some difficult stuff, it's kind of a joy to listen to somebody and to see somebody um, settle into the space and almost, I want to say, like, uh, almost watch them unravel. You know, it's like the armor is, the armor sort of drops. Uh, they start talking and, and it's always, I mean, we only do like a, a 10 minute session. So it's a very short amount of time. But you see somebody's brain kind of, they pick a topic to talk about. So it might be, I'm going to talk about family or whatever. And straight away it goes off on this tangent and that tangent. And, and you see their head sort of unraveling. And then they inevitably they say something, I wasn't planning on talking about that. And, and something came out. So that's a real, you know, it's a real honor in some ways to be able to, to listen to somebody like that. So... Yeah, it's all, I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. I, I don't know the lines between oversharing and vulnerability. I'm happy. I'm always happy if people ask me what my experience is of something. Um, I'm always, I think, always happy to share it. Yeah, I, I love that you're sharing this because I think that that's really what the message that I, I want to get out at the end of the day is there is that stigma about being too vulnerable, sharing too much, opening up about mental health. And I know that exists here in the, in the States. And from my understanding, even, even some States are, are more conservative in that thought than, than others. Some, some States, um, like California, for instance, my understanding is, is they're much more open about mental health and vulnerability conversations. And they'll, they're happy telling people, you know, I, I go to a therapist and it's comfortable, but here, even in, in Utah, uh, it's not quite as open. I think it's getting better. Um, but it's still, it's still very much taboo in some aspects. And I think that even people, when they think about going to therapy, they think that they have to have something wrong with them. Um, using that term, like something is wrong with me, I have to go figure this out. Whereas my hope is to to transition that, to help people to be more vulnerable, more open, um, and not feel like they have to put the brakes on. Uh, yeah. You know, similar to like what you're describing and just like this is life and life is messy and I don't know what the hell I'm doing, mm -hmm. just like everybody else. And I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to try and do it all over again. <laughs> um, and maybe it's going to be hard. And maybe I need to go see a therapist just because it's hard. Not because there's literally nothing wrong with me. It's just because I'm human. 
Yeah. And if we can get to that concept of like, I want to see a therapist because I'm human. That's a that's a win to me. That's that's what I would like. And I, I think this this vulnerability that we're talking about right now is, although a very scary step, a a, a much needed one in in society. Yeah, there's something else about vulnerability which which is on my mind right now, and this is that whole risk taking conversation because I don't really know what I'm about to say, but if you if you kind of take on board this vulnerability thing and think, right, I'm going to be, yeah, I'm going to let down some of my defenses. I'm going to try and be more comfortable with, with being vulnerable and all the rest of it. You don't necessarily want to go down the path of using it as an excuse. So I think what I'm trying to say is just because you're prepared to be vulnerable and say, I struggle with this. Sometimes I feel weak anxious whatever it is also you know you still have to get it together sometimes and and be brave and stand up straight and walk into that meeting and give yourself a talking to um and be sort of the best person that you can be um i don't quite don't quite know how those fit alongside each other really but there's something there. There's, you could say, well, there's strength in vulnerability. I get that. You know, it's courageous to be vulnerable and all that kind of thing. But I do think you could also hide behind it and go, I can't tolerate the real world. I'm too, I'm too vulnerable. You know. Yeah, yeah. I think that, I think that the idea behind it is, um, it, it is to be free and open so that you can go out and create the life that you want it's it's not to be vulnerable as another way of hiding mm. and i think that i think the learning to embrace i can be vulnerable and that makes me strong and now i can go out and create the life that i want because i don't have to worry about what other people might perceive of me or that i might fail or that i might say something that I didn't mean to say, or any of these, any of these things. And, and once we can kind of drop that, that fear of being human, now I can go out and do the things that, that matter to me. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a balance for sure. Um, between hiding behind your fear and not accomplishing what you want to in life and being too vulnerable that you run away from the other side of that genuineness and it's finding that balance and and then proceeding with with whatever direction you want to go and yeah it's it's fu it's funny that you're you're bringing that up because that's exactly how i feel doing this podcast too right like this is this is way more vulnerable for me than i am in probably any other aspect of my life <laughs> um I generally, I generally am a fairly quiet person. Um, I'm typically the person that will listen most of the time and I'll contribute to conversations and, and, and things, but I'm definitely not the primary talker. I'm not the conversationalist. Um, I don't openly share a lot of different things and even people will come to ask me and I don't just open up and just start talking. And that's been a, um, a topic point for 
for me, even with my wife, right? She'll, she'll, she'll want me to talk more or we're in, in social settings and she'll be, she'll be like, they were asking questions. Why didn't you share more? And that's just not my natural tendency. So this, this is, this is me being as vulnerable as maybe I've ever been. And so I'm feeling everything they're talking about is, is relatable to me in this moment. Yeah, well, I, I really appreciate that you you can you know talk on this and talk to me about that stuff, and it's great. And I've right. noticed about you that you were a listener, and which is no big surprise in some sense because you're a therapist. But after our first couple of conversations, I, I happily babbled at you, you know, down the, the Zoom <laughs> call or whatever. I've got this idea and that idea, and, and I was like, hang on a minute, Cody's sat there all relaxed and listening to me <laughs> and I'm talking and I thought yeah. not letting him get away with that forever <laughs> but I do this because I have quiet friends and and I I've learned there were certain friends of mine I talk far too much or, or I yeah. did I've improved a lot I think I hope if any of them are listening to this um maybe once I I'm brave enough to tell them that I'm doing it uh, yeah. they might laugh at this but i've had to learn to bite my tongue because i i'm a bit of a talker and i i well not in every situation if, if we're talking about big stuff and gloomy stuff and life and mental health and all this kind of thing um i like to talk but if if you're talking about probably day-to-day -day stuff perhaps not so much but it's uh yeah yeah well, that's great. I, I appreciate you sharing sharing all that. And um, I mean, that's such a good conversation for what we want this podcast to be and a, a really good opportunity for us to be vulnerable with each other and anybody who listens and just really, really hope that other people can kind of connect to that that fear, but willingness to step in the arena. As, as you brought up Brene Brown, that's one thing that she talks about is that willingness to step in the arena. Um of whatever it is that you want to do and then if there's any criticisms or any things that come with that pay attention to the ones with other people that are in the arena with you uh rather than just sitting on the sidelines yeah now i, I remember talking about that and it's it's something that is is really important it's a good one to keep in mind there's something else just, just quickly nipping back to the the, the oversharing thing Again, I don't know if this is oversharing, but as as we talked about on the, the the last podcast, we both write on Substack, and this is something that brings me a bit of joy. I like to write about mental health or the counselling course that I'm doing, and I had a really busy week last week, and I dashed something off on Substack, and I kind of had it in my mind, you know, oh, be vulnerable, share this, share that, don't worry what people think, and just just hit publish. And I actually kind of regret sending that post out because I think I think it was oversharing. I think I was trying to meet my own um, discomfort with how I was feeling. I'm so busy, and I wanted to go. Oh, you know, God, I'm so busy, and you know, it's just like, but I'm going to do this anyway, and I don't, I don't, you know, screw the consequences and all that kind of thing, and. So I don't exactly know what the point is of telling you that, other than, you know, I, I regret it. <laughs> and yeah. I, might, I might just take it down. But again, you know, nothing's, I'm still here. Nothing catastrophic has happened. And, and that's the other thing. And of course, 
the important point about that is is doing things and being flexible enough to go out as you've just sort of said to to make mistakes and and that's how you learn and and hopefully grow yeah yeah i think i think that's the bottom line right as part of that humanness that, that i've talked about a couple of times and and something that i'll probably talk about in our, in our next topic as well but learning from those mistakes and accepting the fact that we're all going to make them every single one of us are going to make them and it, as soon as we can fully accept that we're not perfect and we're going to make mistakes in the in the public sphere no matter what that looks like Substack or this podcast or just in a friend group or anywhere at work um that as soon as we can accept that piece then we can begin to learn from it and, and try and improve in ways that that we want to improve and not have to go down that shame place uh negative self-talk like Brene, <laughs> Brene builds into so much of her work is the difference between maybe feeling guilty of oh i i wish i wouldn't have done that that's that guilt feeling um, but i can learn from it and then when it starts to increase to ruminate in our head and can't let it go and somehow now that mistake starts to define who i am and i'm no longer good enough those kinds of things that's when we cross over into that shame uh going from guilt to shame and that's when it becomes less effective and less powerful in our lives and all of a sudden it just becomes self-defeating yeah so that's a big piece of, of jumping into that for sure yeah no definitely definitely well, Rich, I appreciate you sharing all that. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch base on that you've learned since our first episode? Um, only some basic stuff like um, be quiet when you're talking. <laughs> I listen back to the podcast when you when you you know you published it last Monday. I was like, man, I push you. So it's just like every every second I'm going, uh huh, yeah, mm-hmm. So I've I've learned to try and be quiet when I, when I'm not speaking. You know, it's funny uh, because when you're going when you're going through um, school to to be a therapist, uh, that's one thing that they kind of focus on, right? Is that reflective listening, and it includes um, validation through body language or through verbal cues of of you know saying yes or uh huh or just some type of acknowledgement that somebody else is talking, and how validating that is for for people. Um, but it, yeah, it is. I mean, it's a different context, I guess, somewhat on a, on a podcast, um, where it's just coming through one audio and it's not just two people sharing a room yes. necessarily, yeah. but, but you bringing that up, that's kind of helped. That's kind of what I wanted to point out and things that I've learned. I, I went ahead, I was so excited to publish this, that first episode that I only did very minimal editing and, um, then I went back through and and listened afterwards, and the there's a couple things that stood out to me. So my my biggest learn learning things from that first episode was mostly on the editing side, and one of those was those couple of times that maybe we did talk over each other, uh, or I, I noticed that I would jump in, and all of a sudden we were both saying something, and then we'd both stop, and then we and then somebody would start again, and so there was like this this moment of silence, uh, which doesn't make for good podcasting <laughs> I think it's five person to person but podcasting it didn't sound great and so that was that was a big learning thing for me is 
oh, I need to go figure out how to try to edit some of those out. So for anybody listening on this next episode, uh, that's my goal for this next episode is I've, I've got my pen and my paper here that I can mark down some times that we might do that. And then Clash. I can try to edit those out. Yeah. Clash. Yeah. So we'll see where that goes. Yeah. And that happened. I mean, I think it happened twice right at the beginning of the podcast. And it's like, yeah. It did get going a little bit better after that, but at first it was like, you know, do you want to start? And I was like, well, and stop, start, stop, start. But eventually we got going and it all kind of worked out, didn't it? Yeah, I think it actually worked out. I felt like we kind of got into a rhythm. So, well, Rich, thanks for sharing um, all of that kind of stuff. I, I just wanted to touch base on that and, and I hope that uh, some people can kind of come along for that journey and, and uh, learn with us, be fellow travelers in this this life of learning. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to touch base on, uh, there's a couple of things that I would like to start each each episode with uh, as we continue to build these is, is one is um, I would like to follow up on anything from our previous episode. And so we've kind of done that here a little bit with some thoughts and feelings of, of things that we've learned from that first episode. But another one is we would really like to build in a question and answer segment into our podcast. And if anybody is listening and they have questions on anything or if we didn't explain something that made any sense um, or if they have ideas for future episodes, we would love to be able to have that interaction and be able, to, yeah. Yeah, be able to work with people um, that, that are listening and really bring in that audience structure. And so I did actually get a question from the first one. And are you okay if I address that real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So... In our first episode, we were talking about how in a counseling room, um, a therapist will generally try to help guide the client from working away from trying to build self-confidence and trying to build more self-compassion. And a, a dear friend of mine reached out and said, hey, can you, can you help me understand the difference between self-confidence and self-compassion? And I really loved that question because I didn't go into it at all and um i don't know it may, it may not be completely obvious and so i really think that that was a very valid question yeah it's a good question and and i'm glad he, he asked you that as well because um i i heard what you said and i thought that's really interesting i'd like to know about that and i'm, I'm glad you brought it up actually because that's one of the things i've thought about throughout this this week you know what do you actually mean by that sounds like something that i could benefit from um, so yeah, yeah, I'd like to hear what your thoughts are. Yeah, of course. So basically, um, let's start with maybe self-confidence. So self-confidence is, is really externally driven a lot of times. Uh, it, it's results-oriented or achievement-based. If, if we're trying to do things and results are going our way, um, our expectations are being met in in whatever we're trying to accomplish. That builds self-confidence. And the more that those expectations are met or the more that those results are getting done, the more confident that we become. And it feels great. And we're running on high and we feel like we can do anything and we're unstoppable. And, but then what happens is as soon as those results start to turn in any way and all of a sudden our expectations are no longer being met, our self-confidence starts to, starts to drop. Mm -hmm. And if there's a series of things that don't go our way, then it just snowballs and that confidence just plummets. 
Um, and that can be extremely detrimental. Then, then we're walking around just not feeling confident about yeah. a lot of things in life. And it, it, it starts to permeate throughout all of our, all of our life, not just, not just what we're, we were focusing on with those results. And so the example that I gave his friend of mine and I are, are uh, big sports fans. And so one thing that we, that we kind of talked about is if, if our team is performing really, really well, then, then the players on that team are feeling really confident. So if they've won two or three games in a row, they go into that next game feeling really confident and high and that they're unstoppable and things are going really, really well. But as soon as those results turn and they start to lose two, three, four games in a row and they're not getting those results, then they're going into that next game just feeling like crap and feeling like I just need to get through this game. I hope that this is going to go well. And they start using things like hope and, mm. oh, I, I, you know, I wish that I can perform better. And you start to second guess and, and question things. And if it gets deep enough, then, like I said, that can permeate into all other areas of your life. Not no longer just the game that they're playing, but then yeah. maybe, maybe as a parent or maybe as a, a spouse or maybe any other options, just because one starts to bleed into the others. So that's yeah. that's of confidence. Any thoughts on that, Ridge, before I jump into um, I mean, the only, the only thing that came into my, my mind, and I don't want to derail you so we don't have to talk about this, but I'm quite in, interested in sort of um, the, the neurological side of this. So um, I don't know I don't know anything about it. So say that as a kickoff, but I know about the, the, the dopamine system. You know, I know some, something about it, a, a rough thing on it. So... The, the, the very simple thing that I guess you could say that if, you, if you're winning, if you have a win, you're going to get some sort of dopamine release. And that's, or, or, and it might be serotonin or it might be a combination or, of the two. And, you know, it's probably quite complicated. But if, if you're winning and things are going your way, um, your uh, responses to that, your physiological responses to that are going to be optimal and they're going to keep you heading in the right direction as soon as you start to lose and, and you mentioned a sports game um that's going to change what's going on inside you physically as well as mentally and then you could argue that perhaps these things are the same thing i've, I've heard people describe it as like you know you're some sort of chemical soup so something happens and, and everything changes and we know this don't we because if, if you you know if something makes you jump um you know, suddenly adrenaline just 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 goes, and all this cortisol sort of rushes through your system. So you have that that very real response. So I'm kind of interested in that side of it. Um, but yeah, no, you, I, I can hear what you're saying. You're sort of describing quite well what confidence looks like. So the so the bit for me which I was stumbling on was okay. So how does compassion um, fix that, or what's the relationship? So yeah, if you want to take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to to your point of um, you know, you get these these neurochemical releases in your brain of the dopamine and serotonin rushes with wins. The the issue is that's accurate. You you do feel good and you feel excited and and you want more of that, of course. The issue is is that it's externally based. It's based off of something that's not really in your control. Mm -hmm. um, you can try to win as many games as you can, and, and we would probably all argue that any time a professional athlete steps up to a game, they are doing everything that they can to, to win that game. But the, at the end of the day, so is the opponent on the other side. 
and the end result is not controllable. All you can do is control the in-game things that you're doing, right? That yeah. how well you're going to specifically focus on on whatever aspect is required, uh, and not the end result. And so that's the problem: is that your confidence is built on things that are external and outside of your control, whereas compassion is really in, intrinsic and mm -hmm. it's built from within. And it's the whole idea with building self-compassion is. And this is where I said I would get back to the humanness again, is accepting our humanness, accepting that we're human, accepting that we are going to make mistakes and we're going to try as hard as we can to focus on the things that we think will help us to win the game. Um, but at the end of the day, they may they may not always help us to win the game because the, the opponent might be better. Um, but the compassion is being able to focus on the things that I can control. I'm human. I'm never going to be perfect. This time I might perform better than next time, or I didn't perform as well this time. And all I can do is try my best again next time and fully accept and embrace that there's going to be successes and there's going to be failures. There's going to be good and there's going to be bad. And we can rely on our desire to continue to improve yeah. and compete and accomplish the things that we want to accomplish by focusing on what we can control and allowing those things that we can't control, allowing them to just be. Yeah. And that's the difference with, com with confidence versus compassion is you can keep self-compassion regardless of whatever's happening on the outside, whatever the external circumstances there are, if you can come back at the end of the day and still fully accept your humanness, your wins and your mistakes and your positives and your failures, and still fully accept who you are, yeah. despite yeah. those, that's true compassion. Mm. I think that, like, I hear, I hear what you're saying, and, and I think that. I would like to be that sort of person and I reckon that I can in, indulge if that's the right word in a bit of self um bashing you know so the time where like I should be compassionate I've made a mistake I've sent my sub stack out I'm not happy with it yeah there's some regret around it and I can be compassionate and I can I can do it and I can be logical about it and go look you know can't control this and also there's this idea, um, slightly off on a tangent, Rick Rubin, the record producer, he, he wrote a book that I, that I read and he was all about, you produce a piece of art, you send it out into the world and then you're not responsible for what people's reaction is to it. It's, it's kind of out of your control, but there's something, um, it's, it's not healthy, but there's something about bashing yourself and and being negative towards yourself that's like a coping mechanism i suppose and, and it's kind of for me and i'm just thinking out loud here but sometimes it's easier to indulge in that sort of self-criticism just like it's easy to judge people um i'm guessing it depends on what people's temperaments are and i would you know if you looked at the the 
big five personality traits or whatever you call them, I'm guessing I'm more on the neurotic side. Yeah, and then you might get somebody who's, this is why I'm not a professional footballer. <laughs> <laughs> One, I'm rubbish at football and I'm too neurotic. And I see these, these guys who like, you know, especially somebody who scores an own goal or something or completely screws something up and they kind of have to dust themselves off and, and, and get on with it. And it's just, I don't know, I've kind of lost my train of thought, but I, I understand the self-compassion piece and, and I know how important it is. And it's something that I would encourage other people to do. I'm just aware that we can all indulge in a bit of negative self-talk. Yeah, I actually think that it's probably more common than most people think. I think it's it's something that we all experience is that negative self-talk, that, that self-doubt. Um, and in a lot of ways, it's actually healthy um, if we learn how to manage it and to, to cope with it appropriately and use it to enhance and improve our lives. Again, that's the guilt uh, versus the shame. If we can yeah. recognize I'm having these this self-doubt and this negative self-talk, what can I do with it and about it? And how can I learn to grow with it versus mm. letting it consume and ruminate in our lives? That's That's that that's that stopping point that it becomes healthy versus unhealthy. Yeah. That's a key word as well is that rumination where you just, you know, I, I do a, a bit of mindfulness and um, I do it badly, although I, I believe that you can't, you can't do it wrong, <laughs> which is, you know, just sit there with your thoughts kind of thing. And, and so I'm quite good these days at, at catching myself when I've got that sort of negative self-talk. Um, and I can, to a certain extent, I can recognize it and almost just let it jabber on in the background while I get on with, with what I've got to do. So I, I think, um, and I think that has, has maybe come from, from doing mindfulness and, and thinking about all these, these sorts of things. But do you think if you can learn to be, uh, have that self-compassion, do you think that grows your confidence somehow? Or is it, I don't quite grasp the relationship between the two. Yeah, I would say that um, I would say that the idea. I mean, I guess it could help you grow your 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 confidence um, because if things are going bad, then you're not going to beat yourself up so much, yeah. right? Like you can just accept it. So I think that it could grow your confidence. And in fact, it's it's probably a healthier confidence because the confidence that it turns out to be growing yeah. is no longer based off results. It's based yeah. off of. I've been in these bad situations before and I was kind and soft to myself and I pulled through and I got out of them and I turned it around to be um, a good and successful situation. Yeah. And so I know that I'm in that situation again and I know that I now have experience and I can do it again. That's a healthier confidence yeah. versus that external confidence. So yeah, I, I could I could see how that they would re relate that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that makes sense. Yeah, we had another comment, didn't we, from somebody who used to talk about um, uh, your emotions being a map for how to sort of live your life. And I thought that was a really interesting comment, actually. And I thought, yeah, I mean, it's right. So some of your emotions are definitely a map. Um, you know, if you're feeling an anxious about something, for instance, it might be because you've got to tend to something. You've got something that you don't want to do in the back of your mind is kind of announcing uh, itself to you that you need to address this situation so it is a map 
but it's also uh, your emotions can create a map, but it can also you know send you off in completely the wrong direction. So it's you know uh, yeah I'm not a therapist and and maybe I'll have some answers to this in a few years, but it's it's trying to um, learn which emotions are useful to you and that you should listen to and which ones are sort of too much and you need to dial them down a little bit. Yeah, and I'm actually really glad that you that you brought that up because there's a couple of different th- uh, thoughts behind that from the therapeutic standpoint. Um, I tend to fall into the type of therapy that's called ACT or ACT. Um, and the whole idea behind that is that all of our emotions are, are a guide, uh, even the difficult ones. And the good ones are our guide in our lives that help us to know what we like, of course, uh, so that we can try to obtain more of that. And then the, the difficult emotions, you know, such as anger and sadness and disappointment and frustration. And, um, I try not to use the term negative emotions, even though that's, Mm -hmm. that's what society uses. I try to use difficult because I don't want, I don't want them to be looked at as, as, as a bad thing. If we're looking at them at as as a guide in our life, they're actually a good thing, but they're just difficult to feel. And so, if you know, if we're feeling some of those difficult emotions, then that is also a guide into terms that um, into things that we don't necessarily enjoy. Yeah. And they can they can teach us a lot about areas to grow. So, for instance, if something is making us angry, then that could really be a good teaching point in our own lives of somewhere we might want to look at building a boundary and so that we don't have to experience that anymore. And I would actually love to spend, I don't know, a couple, one, at least one episode on that topic, because I think it's a big one and, um, and really be able to dive in and help people understand how emotions can be more of a guide than a hindrance in our life. Mm. And, um, in fact, let me just say this, I think, but, uh, what that would like that episode to be about is if we fear emotions, if, if we, if we are, um, under the belief that emotions are a bad thing, then we will spend our entire lives trying to avoid them. Um, but if we can get to a place where we can fully accept that emotions are here to enhance our life, even the difficult ones, then we no longer have to run away from them, then we can fully embrace them and, and use them to improve our life. And that, that's yeah. what I'd like that episode yeah. to be based on. Yeah, I think uh, anger's a, an interesting one. Um, and obviously, <laughs> it's obviously an uncomfortable one. I know when I was on holiday back in the summer, I had a great holiday, and I'm not going to tell you the details of what happened because I'm not going <laughs> to do the oversharing bit. But I had uh, an experience of intense, really intense anger about something that happened. Uh, It's quite funny looking back and it's kind of all dissipated and everything. And um, because I think about mental health and therapy and all this kind of thing, you know, I didn't just sit with the anger. I was like, what? What is this? What is this anger? I kind of like tried to embrace it and go, you know, it's not wrong that I feel like this. I just feel like this, but it was really super intense. Um, and it all sounds a little bit hippy dippy this, but in the, in the end, I, I felt like I could almost see it. There was almost a color to it. It was something inside me 
and by recognizing it, I kind of like almost held it in a space. And it, and I'm not saying it made it more bearable. Um, it didn't particularly make it more comfortable, but I didn't beat myself up for, for being angry. Um, and it was about something important actually. And you know, it's something that I'm, I'm dealing with or will deal with. So yeah. And I, I I'd be interested to talk about that in terms of children's emotions. I mean, that could be a whole other podcast because, yeah. you know, I've I've got three children and I know particularly when they were younger, they sometimes have moments of intense anger and you find yourself saying as a parent, you know, calm down, you, know, you don't need to get so angry about this. And, you know, it's almost certainly not the right thing to say. But what do we know as, as parents? You know, we kind of stumble through and do our best and, probably repeat what was said to us etc but but there's definitely i think um an element of trying to reduce it in them and saying you, yeah you don't need to feel so angry about it it's just a broken toy or it's just this or it's just that but on the other hand as a parent i guess you're worried that it's going to spiral out of control and you want to try and contain it somewhat so it's really difficult. I'm I'm open to all the advice I can get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, parenting is parenting is probably one of the hardest things that we do in life, right? Um, yeah. Obviously, I think it's one of the most rewarding things too. But I think every parent would probably agree it's it's maybe the hardest things that we do in life outside of you know tragedy and and trauma and stuff like that. But um, things that things that we choose to do, it's it's probably one of one among one of the hardest and a lot of times yeah we we definitely do that as as parents even even me as a therapist now i have to i i notice that i with all the training i still notice that that's always my first inclination is to um somewhat dismiss whatever emotional thing is going on with with my child and i think i've gotten better at it over the years uh, but my kids are also older now too um and i've had more experience but a lot of that trying to calm our kids down i th i think comes from our own insecurities with handling emotion because yeah. we, again like you said we've been taught and raised that emotions are are a bad thing are negative and so if somebody's showing intense emotion which young kids do we've not built the skills on how to address it and so it's easiest if we try to convince them that they're overreacting yeah yeah definitely and also remembering that we look through it through a different lens obviously as adults you know to us it's just a broken toy or i mean my kids are older than that now i'm just i'm just looking back in the past and stuff but yeah i think it is really difficult uh handling your children's emotions and i've been like painfully aware that yeah i've done my best kind of thing but I've definitely screwed up my children. So sorry, kids. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I think we all have. I, I saw a um, I saw a funny picture the other day um, of it, I can't remember what the picture on it was, but the saying was basically uh, nature versus nurture, right? Like how w what influences kids more? Is it the nature or the nurture? And at the bottom it said, um, it doesn't matter. Uh, your parents screwed you up either way. <laughs> so true. It's so true. Yeah. yeah. The good thing is, uh, though, I'm open to talking to my kids about how I've screwed them up. I've already, with my 18-year-old, we've already uh, had conversations about this. 
and he's he's informed me um, that I'm I'm too judgmental, which is okay. uh, which was a bit of a, a shock. Yeah. But I love that, Rich. I love that you're willing to have those conversations because I really think that that's that's what keeps that relationship open, right? It's that same vulnerability we started this show with. If you're going into that conversation with him, you're being vulnerable enough to listen to whatever he he's going to say and what his perspective is, and that's what builds connection and and relationship, and, and that's what we want this to be about. Yeah, definitely. And and he, you know, my eldest son, he is old enough now that obviously he's 18, he's gone to university, he's, he's somewhat flown the nest. Um, and, you know, we have we have a, a bit of a, a laugh and a joke about the fact that, you know, God, you know, what was your childhood like? And I sort of ask him little questions, hoping that he's going to give me some good feedback. And he'll sort of remind me of, I remember when you said this thing to me and, and that thing, I'm like, oh my God, you know, that's what, well, you know, I've completely screwed you up. But we do, we do talk about it. And I, you know, I agree. I think it's a good thing. And even though it's a little painful sometimes, I'm happy to listen to, well, not happy to listen to, I'm open to listening to the mistakes I've made. Um, but I still point out that I'm the parent and he's the child. So it's only so much I'll take. Right, right, exactly. Well, um, anything, any other thoughts before I move on from the, the confidence versus compassion that you want to touch base on? No, I'm happy to, to get on to the next one. But I just want to say, though, is, you know, thanks to your mate for sending in the question. And if anybody else wants to send in questions, that'd be, that'd be really appreciated. Yeah, definitely. I I would love for as many questions or thoughts or, or ideas as we can get. Um, in fact, it, maybe the best way, if if you don't know us personally, um, I, I've set up an email. It's everydaytherapistpodcast at gmail.com. So everydaytherapistpodcast at gmail.com. If you send any questions or thoughts or ideas for future episodes, things that you would like to, to hear, um, I, I, I'll definitely make sure I get that email and, and Rich and I will will build that into to another episode. Um, but also with that, uh, one thing that I think that we're looking for, Rich, is um, anybody who's been through therapy and has had, um, I mean, I guess it could be good or bad experience. I'd, yeah. I'd love to yeah. maybe hear a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, but just what your experience was like in therapy and, and what you went in expecting versus what it was, what you liked, what you didn't like, um, just anything to help further this idea that it is okay and healthy to talk about mental health. And so if, if anybody's listening and they're willing to come on the podcast and just tell their experience, uh, please send an, an email to that everyday therapist podcast at gmail.com. I'd, I'd love to love to get yeah. you on the show. Send it in. And, and the other thing I just want to say, just as a little bit of a comfort blanket to anybody who thinks that they might be interested is we can do like, um, you know, we can record it off air, so to speak, and we can edit it and whatever. So we could chop it into this this show that we're doing. So it doesn't, you know, if you if you're worried about how to how it's going to start and what we're actually going to talk about, we, we we can do, you know, we we can talk to you and we can make it work. So you don't have to come on and perform like we're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. We'll try to make it as as low pressure as, as possible. Low pressure, low pressure, <laughs> a cooling off period as well. So if you you know if you change your mind, but yeah, no, we'd 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 love to do that. It'd be great to to get people on. Awesome. 
All right, Rich. Um, well, we we are uh, just under an hour already, and we oh, actually wow. haven't even got into what we originally set up oh, that we were gonna gonna you. talk about. So, um, we we could potentially make that an episode of what we just <laughs> talked about. And well, I and can't believe we've been going that long. I've literally thought we were just getting. This is the introduction. So we've done nearly an hour. Yeah, we're ju we're just under an hour, um, and so we could make that an episode, and then make a another one, or we could just make this a double long one, and maybe we'll just see how it goes. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to carry on talking if you've got time. Perfect. Okay. Well, let's just jump into into what we actually intended for this conversation to be. Mm -hmm. um, there was uh, there was a podcast that uh, I've listened to quite a bit. Uh, they've just just here recently within the last month they recorded their final episode and kind of signed off but um i listened to a bunch of their things a bunch of their episodes and they did it for a number of years and and the podcast was called very bad therapy and it was um it was really eye-opening to me they did a lot a, a lot of really wonderful episodes and one of them in particular really stood out to me um and i felt like it would be good for rich and i to talk about given that i I live here in the U.S. and and Rich lives over there in England, and uh, the the episode really was talking about some of the differences between the two countries. And so, if anybody's interested in that, again, the the episode is called "Very Bad Therapy." I want to make sure to give them credit because uh, that's where I heard the idea first. It's episode thirty-seven, uh, and it's called "You Can Be a Therapist for Sixteen Dollars," and it came out in January of twenty twenty. Uh, so almost four years ago at this point and uh they had a, a interview on the podcast a jordan dunbar who has done documentaries for the bbc so i want to give them credit before uh before we jump in um any thoughts on that rich before we proceed well, i do have some thoughts on it yeah <laughs> okay. so you, you sent me the episode i was a, i was um at college when you sent the episode through to me and I thought, okay, that's interesting. We've got the podcast coming up on Sunday. I'll, I'll give that a listen because we we're going to discuss differences between the, the UK and US um, systems. Um, and I listened to the podcast and I actually found myself feeling a bit defensive. Um, so basically, the you know, you can go and listen to the podcasts, obviously, but it said, what was it? Be a, you could be a therapist for $16 or something. Yep, that's exactly what the title was. Right, okay, okay. So there's this idea, really, that the sort of, the thing about it was that there's the, the term psychotherapist or counsellor is, is not regulated in the UK. So anybody, I could call myself a psychotherapist now. All I've done is the introductory training. Uh, even if I hadn't done that, I could call myself a psychotherapist. Um, so it was all about the, the lack of regulation. And this guy, uh, Jordan Dunbar, who's a journalist, he, he'd been in therapy for a number of years and, and it was about some of his bad experiences although he didn't go into that too much what his bad experiences actually were so they were really it felt to me and it might have been because i was a little bit defensive in a defensive mood that they kind of the word isn't attacking but they were kind of going the uk system is ridiculous it's completely unregulated that's true but in defense of, of the system, if you like, there's, you know, most therapists out there are highly qualified and they're members of regulatory bodies like the BACP and the UKCB. 
and there's quite stringent measures to to get accredited. And then the other piece that, that sort of wasn't talked about is obviously we have the NHS over here. So most people seeking psychotherapy, counselling, mental health support, they would actually go to their GP and they would get supported through the NHS. Now, if you're not a qualified psychotherapist up to level four would be minimum, which is, I think that's equivalent to the first year of a bachelor's degree or something like that. If you didn't have that, you would not get a job in the NHS. So, so really by that nature, it is regulated in some sense. So I'm not saying I'm right about any of this, by the way. I'm just saying that when I listened to it, these were the, the, the thoughts that, that flowed out of me. And also as somebody that wants to get into the industry, I thought, you know, so, oh God, I'm going to get into an industry that's unregulated and kind of frowned upon a little bit. And, you know, so that's my brain um, splurge as to what I thought about it. Yeah, well, I went back and listened to it again um, in preparation of this and one thing that I caught this next time that I listened to it, I don't think I caught before, is is Jordan was saying that there is not enough licensed therapists um, currently in, is it, did you say NHS? NHS, yeah. National yeah, Health the, Service. National Health Service. Okay, so there's not enough um, therapists. There's a shortage of therapists in the NHS, which has created a pretty long wait list um and and for him at the time that they recorded this again almost four years ago um he was on a on a wait list for two years and which has forced some people to go to private pay um so they don't have to wait two years to to go into counseling and that's where maybe some of the risks are of anybody being able to say they're a psychotherapist that's not um, licensed through <laughs> nhs and it kind of emphasized to me um, the need for more trained therapists over there in the UK um, to be part of part of the system mm -hmm. to to help it continue to enhance and improve and hopefully shorten those those wait times. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely, and um, I think that waiting list has got longer actually. Mm -hmm. Um, so people are going off and 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 seeking private therapy. Um, it's a really difficult one. I mean, I don't want to get into the politics of it because mainly because I don't understand it. But the NHS is, you know, I hear it's woefully underfunded for a start, and and there's also this big, um, I don't know whether you, would you call it a boom in in people requiring or or seeking um, mental health support. Um, there's a number of reasons why that might be. It could be um, COVID, um, you know, all the lockdown stuff that happened. That, that's one thing. Young people are sort of needing more support. And then, God, I'm so ignorant about the world. We've got a cost of living crisis here. Do you have that there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we call it we, we, we call it inflation. Um, everybody says inflation, inflation. But when I was over there last year, uh, as we were just walking around, everybody kept talking about co cost of living crisis. And I yeah. think it was just the difference of terms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like the cost of living thing. I mean, it's it's just, it's affecting everybody. Um, it's, it's really difficult because there aren't any answers to it, you know, at the moment. I mean, there's probably 
political answers to it, but I'm not. I'm not trying to talk about that. I'm just thinking from day for day to day people who are struggling. What what can you do? You know, people literally don't have the money to eat, and I, I hate these sort of sayings. But people, there's all this thing of heating, heating or eating. You know, which one are you going to choose? Because energy costs are completely ridiculous and. Anyway, we're kind of going off track, but the NHS is is completely underfunded. I mean, nobody's got any money to seek private therapy, so that's kind of a surprise to me if that's if that's going up. Um, I don't know. I just felt a little bit protective of all the people that have spent. You know, I mean, to be like CBT therapist here, it would take you nearly ten years to go through all your your training and get to the point where you're qualified and you've got enough experience under your belt. I mean, I looked at some of the stuff when I wrote that thing on Substack about, um, and you responded to it actually, about the qualifications you need and experience in the US. And, and I'm supportive of that. I think we should have that here. I don't quite know. Interesting, actually, on that documentary, I think he mentions that he spoke to a politician here and this politician in turn spoke to other politicians and most people just assumed it was a regulated industry. So that's crazy. Yeah, I found that really, really, really interesting as well. Um, it's it's interesting to, to me and, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this because this is my American perspective coming out um, and, and much of it is based off of this podcast that we're talking about. And so it's not a very maybe not a very well-educated thought, but this is where I'm at currently, is it almost feels like the UK has only very recently started to talk more about mental health or to focus more on mental health, whereas in the past it was maybe very taboo and secretive. And and um, I think that the the United States has maybe done so longer we've been open to these conversations even though at the beginning of this episode like i said different states experience that very differently in terms of how much can i say i've got i'm going to a therapist and who who goes to therapists and who doesn't and i think those conversations are still growing but correct me if i'm wrong my my current feeling right now is that the united states maybe has been focused on growing the mental health field a little bit longer than yeah i think i think you're right and and definitely that taboo is um i mean the word therapist actually so I, I know we had a quick discussion i tend to use the word counselor because my training is called counseling but it's the same thing it's it's therapy and occasionally you know i don't think anybody has ever said to me um in their life so they go to therapy it's it's the sort of thing that you hear you might hear like a, a musician um talk about on an interview yeah that they spoke to their therapist is i would say that it's actually it sounds like an American thing to do, you know, <laughs> definitely. Um, I think the mental health discussion is a new thing. And, and I said on the, on the podcast last week that, um, the, the, th- the thing that's in the news all the time, um, and in social media is, you know, we need to talk about mental health. We need to break down the taboos and, and, you know, everybody should be talking about it. And I was saying, but nobody is talking about it. They're just talking about the fact that we should be talking about it. <laughs> And, and and I think and I don't I don't know what the answer is and I don't know where it goes from here. I was thinking actually, as I also mentioned, uh, discussing mental health in the workplace, 
and this thing about oversharing and context and all this kind of thing. And I thought in the workplace, it would just be good if people had access to therapy. You know, it's not so much that you're going to talk about it within meetings and day-to-day stuff. It's just that the, the facilities are there if you want them. And that would hopefully be private therapy. Yeah, access access is a big thing. And, and one of the things that I've, I've, I don't know if I would say I've advocated for because I haven't necessarily done anything specifically, but I've talked to a few people here and there about my views on therapy and it's bias, of course. I mean, I'm a therapist, so I'm going to have positive yeah. views, views on it, right? Yeah. But I would love to get to a place where therapy becomes... Um, like visiting the dentist. And again, I don't, I don't know what, it, how it looks like over in the UK, but over here are people generally go to a dentist every six months and that's what our insurance pays for. Mm-hmm. And so we'll go get a checkup every six months. Um, and you know, they'll do, they'll do the x-rays and they'll do the cleaning and they'll do all of that kind of stuff. And, and then the dentist will come in and, and they'll say, um, you know, you look good. See you in another six months. Or they'll say, you know, this looks like maybe a concern, uh, we should probably do a little bit of extra work here. We have a cavity to do or a root canal or whatever the case might be, right? We need, we need to do some extra work. Um, but you get that feedback every six months and then the insurance authorizes whatever that next piece is based off of the dentist recommendation. I would love for therapy to hit that type of point where it's just, this is what people do. They come in every six months or so for a, a checkup. It's just, covered by for us it would be insurance right because we we would be insurance based that might be different over there in the uk with the nhs but for you'd get a six-month health checkup and if your therapist says "Eh, you know this is this is a little bit of uh, of something that we might want to work on i notice that you're you're talking about a lot of anxiety i notice that you're maybe having it having a difficult time adjusting to this new job or hey you're a brand new parent or you know you're you're getting married soon like let the therapist be able to to have an, have a say, and I think that some work could be done in this area, and and then that would be authorized. I would love to get to that place, but yeah, um, that's maybe just a pipe dream. Yeah, I mean, I'd 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 like it. I don't, you know, I honestly don't know what other people would feel. I, I think obviously British people are quite reserved, so maybe that's got a thing. I do have to make the point as well that Americans have better teeth than the uh, British. <laughs> <laughs> so you might have, uh, you know, in a few years, it might be you might have, you know, bright white uh, mental health and yeah, good teeth. So we've got crooked teeth and and brains perhaps, and also my checkup for my checkup at the dentist. I think it's once every nine or ten months, something okay. like that. And they really don't pay that much attention to me. It's paid for by well, we do we do contribute to it, but it's an NHS appointment and it's in and out. You know, as long as your teeth aren't falling out, that's that's you, you, you you're off. But yeah, I don't, I don't honestly know, and and I think, you know, I don't, I don't. Maybe it's a little bit of a, I don't, I don't think it is a sexist thing to say. Actually, I think men in general, and it's a horrible, horrible sweeping statement. I think men wouldn't really want it. I don't think that they want to talk about that. They want to you know soldier on through uh work out their own way and also they've got ways like lots of good healthy ways of dealing with uh, their mental health now and that might be like sports or i know going to the pub with friends or whatever i i go i'm a member of a mountain biking group and that's 
it's really interesting to me because we, we can go out a group of men, there might be five or six of us. And it's really nice because there's no pressure to talk because we're out on our bikes cycling along. And the main discussion between the guys is about bike frames, gears, and, you know, I've just changed this bit on my bike and all this kind of thing. And then occasionally things will progress a little bit further and people might say they're having a hard, they wouldn't say I'm having a hard time at work. They wouldn't be so blatant about it, but they might start talking about work and you hear little snippets of things and it might, you know, go a little bit deeper. And then as soon as it gets a bit uncomfortable, they can backtrack and tell me about their new tires that they're going to be buying for their bike at the weekend. Um, so I think that's in, and I'm guessing it's probably the same in America, but in our culture, and I'm just talking about men here. Um, but I think there's lots of that stuff and it's really healthy. If they had the opportunity to go to a therapist, it's just a total guess, but I'm guessing most of them would say, no, it'd only be people like me who uh a bit more you know that way inclined or perhaps who've had struggles in the past but i might be completely wrong maybe there would be more take up and perhaps the reason that there isn't you know perhaps the reason i'm saying there wouldn't be a take up is because there's a stigma and and there really is a stigma and if you and i think you said this before that um i mean if somebody's going to therapy your immediate reaction is yeah, why? What's what's wrong with you? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I think that's the stigma coming in, right? Like everybody still thinks, oh, we, we, exactly. Why are you going? But you know what I love is um, I have a variety of clients right now who just like to come to therapy, and we just talk about life. Um, okay. We don't have necessarily an agenda. Some of them we do. We do, we definitely have an, um, certain things that they want to work on. Um, but some of them, some of the clients, they just come in and, um, you know, we're going on four years now of, of therapy. Um, and we've been through some rough things together. And I say we, not that I'm going through it, but in some ways I am. I am going through it with, with them. Um, and I, that's try to, that's how I try to view myself as, as a therapist is look, I don't, I don't know the answers. I, I can't tell you what to do. I'm, I'm not, I'm not an expert in your life. Yeah. Right. But, um, but so with that in mind, yeah, we've been through a lot together, but now we've been working together for four years and we're just coming in to just talk about life. And, um, those are some, those are some of my favorite clients because we really, really get into some really good good discussions and it, it doesn't have to address anything specifically it's just a just a tune-up which i love yeah i love that and and i um naively thought that that's what my role might be <laughs> if i you know if i get to qualify as a counselor or a therapist it was like you know chatting about stuff and and really getting into i was just talking about life really um which was really quite naive because obviously people are coming with you know terrible things that have happened to them and trauma and they're struggling with with different things so it's it's way more complex than than i ever really gave it credit for but i i mean i personally i mean one of the things that's when i started looking into doing the training and i discovered that once you get to level four so i'm currently doing level three at the moment once you get to level four one of the requirements it's a two-year course and one of the requirements is that you're in therapy for those two years yourself 
And oh. yeah, and, and, and far from making me recoil, I thought, oh, great, I'll be able to go to therapy. And I won't have yeah. to. Well, and I thought, and I won't have to pay for it, but it turns out I do have to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's fair. That's a good excuse. Actually, so, so for me, as somebody who's you know uh, also a victim of feeling stigmatized and everything, it's quite nice for me to be able to say, "I'm doing. I have to go to therapy because I'm training to be a counsellor." It's not. Yeah, it's not. There's anything wrong with it. With me, it's just something that I have to do. So I like that side of it. Yeah, I do too. And and there's so many avenues that I could go down with 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 that and why I I feel like that's a a positive thing uh to to go through, but um in the interest of of our of our agenda, yes. um I I actually want to hear more about that because that's that's what we wanted to talk about is the differences between uh the UK and and the US and um you you you've brought up education. And so are you okay if we start with education? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I would love to hear, and you tell me. I can either share what education looks like here in in the states, or or you could share what it looks like in in the UK. Which which would you rather start with? Well, I'll 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 do a quick um, whistle stop tour of what it looks like here. I, I, I know I don't know too much about it, so that's why it's going to be quite brief. But I did an introduction um, to counselling. Um, which is a level two course, which is the equivalent of a GCSE, which is something that you do in high school. Um, I'm now doing level three, which is equivalent to A-levels. And then I have to do level four, which is a two-year course. And then once I've done that, plus 450 hours of voluntary uh, work as a counsellor, then I am officially a, a qualified counsellor. But then I could go on to do levels five, six, seven, eight, and nine. And I think... I think it's eight or nine is this sort of PhD level. Yeah, so you can be qualified at level four, but you can carry on and on and on and on. Um, the other route through to doing it actually is to become, to do a degree in psychology. And then you can sort of go off in a different direction and, and study counseling and psychotherapy. So, but I believe over in the US, it's much more stringent. Yeah, I mean, and it maybe there's there's some there's some maybe some similarities here. So in in this first one where you're talking about with your levels two, level three, and level four, what is that? Is that to be? Is there a difference then between counseling school and going the psychology route that you mentioned? Um, well, psychology. Um, so here, like we talked about the fact that anybody can call themselves psychotherapist. Yeah, but. I don't think anybody can call themselves a psychologist. I might have got that wrong. I did write about it, actually. Um, but if you're going to be a psychologist, you need to do a degree in psychology, and then you could further that on and, and, and do a PhD. Um, but if you want to be a qualified psychotherapist, and I know there's no... I know anybody can call themselves a psychotherapist, but these um, regulatory bodies, the BACP, require that you have at least a level four. So that would take you really a minimum of sort of three to four years of training before you could call yourself a psychotherapist. Okay. And is that, so is that your, your counseling college that counseling you're referring college, to? Yeah. yeah. So this is where this, this whole counseling psychotherapy thing, the, these words are interchangeable words. So yeah. just, they seem to call it on these level one, two, three, four, five courses. They, they refer to it as counseling, but as soon as you're registered with one of these, um, 
organizations like the UKCP or BACP. Um, well, this is not true. BACP, you can use the terms interchangeably, so counselor or psychotherapist. With the UKCP, once you're a level four, you can call yourself a counselor. But I believe you have to be level five and you have to have done additional um, work before you can actually call yourself a psychotherapist. Okay. And and maybe let's take a step back really quick, um, yeah. just for anybody that's listening that might not really understand these terms or maybe the differences between them. Um, I know here here in the United States, we we generally use these terms interchangeably as well. Um, but there are some differences if you actually get into the specifics of them, even though they're both used fairly regularly. And I'm, I'm wondering if this is how it relates to over there. But over here, counseling generally refers, refers to um, trying to address a specific topic or a specific um, thing that somebody might want to, to focus on, such as maybe like stress management or something something like that. And it's, it's generally looked at as short term. They don't really go into depth of a person's upbringing or um, you know, social history or anything like that. And, and a lot of times it's, it's very advice driven. Uh, the counselor might advise the client um, on things to try and, and try and do um, to overcome that specific thing that they're focused on. Whereas psychotherapy, psychotherapist uh, generally is longer term and it's more broad. They, they might go into your upbringing or your history or relationship with parents or um, social s settings, things like that, and, and really try and bring out where where a client developed certain behaviors or habits that have been detrimental in their lives and it might require some deep digging and it might take a little bit longer um, and a lot of times they'll also look at the environment that the client might be in and and, and try and really to go go through that and so the the terms are interchangeable but those are the differences between the two when you get technical is that mm. is that similar yes. over there it is it is similar i think right when i first talked to you about this and i said um in the UK, the term, if you're a counsellor, the first thing they teach you is a counsellor doesn't give advice. Do you remember me saying that to you? I do, yeah. Yeah, and you were like, oh, that's interesting because we actually do give advice and, and, and all this kind of thing. Anyway, as soon as I started my level three course, that idea that a counsellor doesn't give advice, I can kind of see where it comes from now, but it's not really true. It's kind of like broken down as, as, as things have progressed. Um, I think the reason they teach you that is because at the very beginning, they're trying to teach you about listening skills and not jumping in with advice. So if you take a person-centered approach, for example, and somebody, you know, starts telling you about they've got a problem with their girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, you don't jump in and say, have you tried saying this to them? Yeah. Have you tried saying that to them? So it's, it's almost like quite, um, a blunt or. I don't know what the word is. It's like um, a simplistic way of saying, you know, you, you don't give advice. You're there to do active listening and and some some sort of show some empathy. So it's all about listening skills. But as soon as you get into it, so we're doing what they call integrative um, counselling. So it brings in psychodynamic, um, CBT, and person-centered therapy. 
Now, of course, as, as soon as you're doing the C CBT, you are giving advice in some sense because you're telling people, you know, when certain thoughts or feelings come up, you could try shifting your focus and think like this. I mean, I don't know much about it. Um, and then with psychodynamic, obviously you're thinking, you're probing a little bit and trying to find out what's happened in their past. Um, and you, you might sort of steer the ship, so to speak, in a particular direction by asking certain questions. So then you're using person-centered therapy to try and, and, and some sort of psychodynamic stuff to kind of, well, as I said, like steer the ship in a certain direction. And the other thing, if people aren't in a place where they're well enough, let's say, to talk and have these deep discussions, you might use CBT at the beginning to help them cope with some anxiety and get them to a place where they can actually sit down and have a conversation. So to say a counsellor never gives advice is kind of like, it's, it's not that it's not true, but it's just not that simple. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And I think, I, th I think what you're talking about really is we're, we're not really telling the client how to live their life. That's not the advice that we're giving. We're not saying go talk to, you know, if it's if it's an issue that you may be experiencing with your spouse, we're not saying go tell your spouse this. My advice is that you that you say this. It's more of um, here's some tools. The, the the advice is this is a tool that you can implement um, that might help you to further further uh improve or enhance uh your life and go give that a try the, the advice is to is is the focus on a tool rather than a a, a direct intervention yeah yeah but I, I, I want to jump back to just to make sure i understand so if what you're telling me is that there's maybe two different routes that you guys could go either this counseling college route of psychotherapy or maybe the psychologist route and and that's two different options of how you can get into this field if you yeah. go, if you go the counseling college route, I mean, you you said it maybe like nine levels. Like how long, how long are we, how long of a program, uh, how long was that going to take? I think you said you can start practicing at level five. Uh, level four, level four. Level so to four? get to level four, you'd have to do an introduction, which isn't actually a full year, but it, let's make it simple. Let's call it a year. Then your level three course is a, a, an additional year. And the level four is two years. So that's four years just to, to get to the base level of, of calling yourself a counselor. Yeah. And okay. then and then I think five, six, and seven, I think they're additional years. So I think five, six, and seven actually are um almost like your first, second, and third year of a degree. Um I don't know. Do you, do you call them degrees in the States? Yeah, yeah. Ours ours are um bachelor's bachelor's degree and then master's yeah. degrees. Yeah, yeah. So, so that that I think that would be five, six, and seven, and then I think eight and nine is is sort of uh, PhD level or masters. Sorry, it's masters level, and then it goes to PhD after that. So you could effectively, I, I don't know. I'm guessing it could take you seven, eight years to complete. 
Okay. And and yeah, so our it sound, if if that's if we look at it that way, yeah. So your first four years is basically going to equal our bachelor's level. Mm-hmm. Your five, six, and seven is going to equal maybe a master's level degree for us, and then your eight and nine would be PhD level. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Apologies if I've got that wrong for people listening. He might be getting that's not true at all. That's a load of rubbish. <laughs> it could well be wrong. You know, I mean, if we could do like a link or something, I, I could perhaps put a little spreadsheet together because this was something I was going to do for Substack anyway, which was to put the the different levels and and what you know where you need to get to before you can get um, uh, recognized by, by one of these things like the BACP. So perhaps we could do that. Yeah, if you if you if you want, you can put something together and then send me the link. Um, I actually wanted to attach the very bad therapy link into the show notes okay. also. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so um, yeah, so if anybody's listening, and they want to they want to dive in a little bit, then then we'll have some show some show notes there. Or even better, do it for me if anyone's listening. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Send it send it to send it to Everyday Therapist yeah. Podcast yeah. at Gmail. Yeah. Um, okay, so so after your four hour or after your level four course and your four hundred and fifty hours, you can practice as a counselor. Yes. Over there in the UK. Yes. And how does that differ specifically from practicing as a counselor versus practicing as a psychotherapist after your levels five, six, and seven? What can you do differently? Well, this this is some this is where it goes. It's all a bit ambiguous. So the the two the two main bodies. One is the BACP. So that's the British British Association of Counselors and Psychotherapists. And then you've got the UKCP, which is I don't know what it, what it stands for, but the second part of it is counselors and psychotherapists. Now, with the the main difference between the two, I think, is the UKCP. You have to have levels five and six perhaps before you can call yourself a psychotherapist okay um whereas with the bacp you could call yourself a psychotherapist as soon as you've got level four Uh, i think it more comes down to what's the public's perception of the terms so Mm. and i can only speak from my own perspective in some ways but i think it's assumed in our country that a counselor is somebody that you go to for talking therapy and I think as soon as you hear the word psychotherapist, you tend to think of somebody in a, you know, in a more, who's more qualified. So, so even though they're not necessarily, I think that's the perception of it. And that goes back to that documentary that we talked about with Jordan Dunbar, um, who, when he approached some uh, politicians about it, they just assumed the same thing, that a psychotherapist was, was like, a, you know, he was an accredited thing yeah. so it's, it is totally ambiguous and confusing and when i wrote that substack post i literally spent uh hours and hours looking at what the differences were <laughs> and i just couldn't quite get a grasp on it it is worth in fact we could put a link to my substack post on that because it, it, i have tried to summarize it i even did a little table in there which summarizes it as best as i think you can yeah that's a great that's a great point so if if you were to, and I don't mean you personally, but if anybody over there uh, was to want to go into therapy, maybe they got on that two-year wait list or whatever the, the time is now, and they said, I, I can't wait that long. I would like to go see somebody soon. I imagine that they would just try to Google a therapist. Would would the, the average person... 
know the difference or try to Google like counselor or psychotherapist or do you have any idea of what somebody might do to try and find somebody that not too sure and and this is where again and it, this documentary draws attention to this and it's it's quite bad in a way because people aren't going to know what the BACP is or the UKCP you know does it all these things people don't know and they don't care about it one thing that might come up if they googled it is the counseling directory and okay. the counseling directory is a directory of counselors or therapists that are registered with one of these uh, organizations. Um, does that guarantee that they're a good therapist? Not at all, you know, yeah. but at least, at least they've been through the process of being accredited. And at the very least they've, they've, um, they've got their qualifications. So that would be a route. So I, I'm pretty sure that if you Google psychotherapist or counselor, um, the you, the counselling directory will be the first thing that will come up. Okay. And then if you're registered with one of these places, then you'll be listed in in the area that you practice in. Believe so. Believe so. Gotcha. Okay. Well, yeah. Over here, um, it is a little bit different. There's there's a few different paths, but they're all generally the same. Um, in order to get into to this field, you have to go through that same path that I talked about earlier is, is bachelor's and then master's level. And, um, you can't actually practice any therapy until you've accomplished your, your master's level. And so usually your bachelor's is going to take you about four years or so. And then your master's is going to take you another two years on top of that. So we're about right. six years in before we can practice. But the, 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 the variation in fields that you can go into is, um, what you get your degree in, your bachelor's and your master's degree. So there's fields of, of social work. You can go into get your f degrees in social work. You can get your degree in psychology. Uh, you can get your degree in sociology. Mm -hmm. um, you can do clinical mental health. Um, or you can do um, marriage and family therapy. And every every school of thought in, in those programs that I just mentioned are generally going to cover the same type of material but they're going to have their own little twists um so for instance social work um will focus on different types of therapy okay. uh, like you were mentioning earlier like cbt and act and person-centered and those types of things you'll have a sort of an introductory course to different types of therapy yeah uh, but the the twist that it has is in other classes that you'll take you will also explore things like opening up a nonprofit um, or, you know, how to, how to get involved in the, you know, the public sphere of, yep. of social work. And um, it's, it's very broad and encompassing. Whereas maybe psychology, if you, if you get a degree in psychology, then you'll have those same courses on different ways to do therapy, but your little twist is going to be more focused on how the brain works, right? right. And maybe the dopamine and serotonin type stuff that you were talking about yeah. at the beginning yeah. of the podcast, and you had better understanding of that kind of stuff. Um, if you get your master's in marriage and family therapy, then your little twist is going to be more focused on systems type work. So a lot of schools 
teach you how to work with individual clients. Like an individual person will come in and you can do, you know, therapy type A or therapy type B or therapy type C, whichever one you want to do as a therapist. But marriage and family therapists will learn about how to work with a system. Meaning, yeah. how do you work with a couple, right? If somebody comes in, you want to look at what is what is the dynamics going on with their spouse or with their kids or with their parents. And you're, it's more systems focused. That's that little twist. So yeah. that's yeah. really the differences between the schools, but they're all generally the same in terms of bachelor's and then master's level and then being able to practice from yeah. there. Yeah. You know, just and just as you were talking about that and you said about the family therapist, what did you call it? Family and marriage? Marriage and family therapist, yeah. That's got to be the scariest one, hasn't it? So it's, it's, yeah, it's actually kind of funny because, um, my, my degree is in social work, so I can't speak for, for people that went through the marriage and family program, but the few people that I know that have, and just listening to other people talk about it, um, they don't come out feeling fully confident, which none of us do. None of us graduate with our masters and feel like, okay, I know how to do therapy now, Mm. um, but it's so much easier to go into that individual track and mm-hmm. s- instead of that systems focus. And yeah. so a lot of them end up focusing so much on individuals anyways, rather than the systems. And, and it's definitely, it's definitely scary. I mean, if you think about getting, working with one person who a lot of times w- wants to be in the room versus a family who's maybe struggling and you have to be really, really good at dealing with conflict in order to work yes. with, with a system. There's a program, I don't know if you've seen it, it's on uh, BBC iPlayer, we call it over here. And a friend of mine from college recommended it and it's called um, uh, Couples Counseling or Counselor or couple, Couples Therapy, I think it's called. We'll put a link if we can. Um, you you can probably only watch it if you're in the, in the UK, but wow, what an eye-opener that is. And you talk about the conflict, um, you know, and this this woman who's, who's the therapist, she's absolutely brilliant, but she's she's almost like, you know, she has to be a referee, and exactly as you've described. I mean, the, the, the first one, the opening one that they did, the husband did not want to be there at all. And he was a really confident guy, yeah, quite a scary guy in some ways. And, and he'd been brought along by his wife and everything. It's absolutely fascinating. And I just sat there and watched it and thought, I could never do that. I could <laughs> never do that. It is, it is really, it's good. It's definitely worth a watch. Definitely worth a yeah. watch. Yeah, yeah. If you uh, if you can find that link, send it over, and I'll try yeah. to throw it in, in the show notes too. Yeah, and we'll couples, see if we can... couples therapy, I think it's called, but I'll send the link over. Okay. All right. Um, one, one question that I had for you, and maybe we've already touched base on this is, um, is just licensing, getting licensed. Mm. Um, so over here, um, after you finish your degree, you have to, um, you have to do, you have to take a test, um, in whatever degree you've, you've completed to be a, to be a, a psychotherapist and it's a clinical like a clinical level test to to make sure that you understand the material well enough and then um and then you also have to complete a certain amount of hours um, of practice um and supervision before you can be fully licensed so you get you take that test and you are provisionally licensed while you're working on your hours and for social work it's three thousand hours 
of, of, of practice and 75 hours of supervision. And then once you have completed those, you can apply for your, your full license from there. Mm -hmm. can and, I just check, Cody, can I just check what do you mean by supervision? Yeah, so basically you have to have somebody who has been fully licensed for at least two years. Uh, you have to meet with them regularly. Um, a lot of people will meet with that supervisor like once a week or once every two weeks for about an hour. And you will review uh, different clients that you've been meeting um, and talk about, you know, this client is experiencing these things and uh i would like to explore you know these other ideas and these other this type of therapy with them and then that's, that supervisor will give you feedback and thoughts and, and and direction on how to continue to work with that client and so you'll meet with you'll meet with that supervisor for about 75 hours and they'll help guide you to become a better practitioner okay i believe it's the same thing here i was just checking it it, was, it meant the same thing and when i first heard about the supervisor thing it felt like um like almost a bit like pyramid sales to me. I was like, hang on a minute. So I've got to pay for therapy when I'm doing my level four. And then once I'm actually um, qualified, because I think, in fact, I think it's continuous with us. So to be a member of the BACP, I think you have to be in continuous supervision. So it's like, so, you know, I'm paying, paying to do the course. Then I've got to pay the supervisor and the supervisor's probably got a supervisor and that supervisor's got a supervisor and it all, oh. and it all felt a bit strange at first, but then, but then I, I kind of, I do understand it as well. And I, I can, I can see the value. So I was just, I think the difference is for you though, you don't have to continue with it. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And actually that's, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that because yeah, once we have our hours in, we are officially licensed and, and we don't have supervision anymore mm -hmm. going forward at any mm -hmm. point in time. Do, do you, do, do you not miss having that though? So, you know, once Extremely. you're out there, yeah, yeah. Extremely miss it. Um, we, they try to ingrain in us the idea to have consultation with other therapists where you'll kind of get together and, and talk about things in general, but it's, it's different because confidentiality, mm -hmm. right? Like when you're meeting, when you're just starting out as, as a therapist and doing these, these hours and you're under supervision, generally you'll tell your client as like, Hey, everything that we talk about is confidential. Um, however, I am under supervision, uh, as I continue to learn. And so there might be times that I might might talk about some of our sessions in my supervision only in an attempt to learn and help you the best that I can. And so, so that's, that's okay. And that's expected, but, but once you're fully licensed, uh, that goes away and you are pretty much on your own. You can yeah. consult with other therapists, but, um, you have to be very careful not to, to express any information that's confidential. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's a little isolating in all honesty, you yeah. are completely on your own and you don't have as much guidance or support as you did as w when you were learning. Yeah. And I yeah. miss it, miss it completely. And, and most therapists I know seem to feel the same way. Mm -hmm. I think I, I, I mean, I can really see the value in, I, I mean, I hope I've got it right, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that the idea is that you, you continue doing it and I can't imagine being a therapist without having that because obviously you can't go home and talk about what you've been doing at work like with other jobs so 
um it's perhaps something we could talk about on another episode how you how you deal with that because obviously you're internalizing all this stuff that people are telling you about um and i'm just at the beginning of learning about all this stuff and i'm sure i'm hoping there's some education around how do you sit with a person and and go to the depths with them but then somehow manage to step back out of it and then get your own life back and and not be consumed by it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and every, every client's different, right? Every situation's different. Some things will stick with you longer and, and other things um, you're able to let go. And, and it's kind of funny because there's a number of times that I'll walk into a session with a client and I'll be able to say, Hey, you know, since the last time that we met, um, I've been thinking about this particular topic or there's even a number of times where I'll be like educating myself on, you know, by reading various books or listening to podcasts or, uh, just, just coming across some new information somewhere. And, uh, I'll start thinking about a particular client and how that will, that new information will apply to them. And I'll walk into a session and say, Hey, I, you know, I learned about this and I was thinking about, about you and some of our conversations and I wanted to share this with you. And, um, so sometimes it's just popped up out of nowhere. Sometimes you think that you've, you've got those, those boundaries in place to, to try and move, move on and compartmentalize things. But then again, I feel like this has been the theme of this episode is my humanness kicks back in and, and it's like, oh yeah, but you also still work with clients and here's this one piece of information that really applies. And now they're, you know, deeply in your, in your thoughts and, and mind. So yeah, it, yeah. it comes out when you, when you think that you've moved forward. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. We were, we were learning about boundaries in college as well, by the way, I know you just use that word boundaries, but, um, that sort of, which ties into that sort of um getting into deep conversations with somebody being there with them but then having boundaries in place and we call it contracting here so those boundaries are sort of thrashed out at the beginning what it's what it's going to be and and it's this thing of going you know i'm not your friend i'm your therapist so it's kind of like we can we can share this within this room but once i step out of here you know it's it's, it's something else as a, a boundary there um and at first, when they first started talking about it, I was like, oh, here we go. This is you know, the red tape of contracting. And, ah, oh, man, you know, I hate all that sort of stuff. It just it just felt like admin, and I was just going, oh, God. And then after doing it, um, and then writing a little bit about it, I thought, God, yeah, it's actually, it's really just so important. You know, it's so important for the, the client, obviously, to keep them safe. Um, but it's also important for yourself so it's just something that i had to to think about a little bit yeah you know what's interesting with that is um boundaries is like the number one complaint that comes up um with our regulation boards here um our, our licensing boards here so we have to get licensed with our state once we once we take the test, once we do all of our hours, we, we will get fully licensed with the state. And once you're licensed, then you have to live by the code of ethics of whatever your um, your degree is in. So like social work will have our own code of, code of ethics and marriage and family therapists will have their own code of ethics. And they're all generally the same with some, with some tweaks, right? But, but boundaries... Um, and dual relationships specifically is, yeah. is what we're talking about in these boundaries is uh, 
is the number one complaint that the licensing office gets in in the state of Utah. And some of them are are minor, right? And some of them obviously go to to extremes of developing relationships outside of personal relationships with clients. Um, but despite the fact that it is talked about in school and all ethics classes and regularly, it seems to be the number one thing that comes up the most as complaints. And depending on what boundary is broken, that can, you can, you can be fined. Uh, so if let's say you break a boundary here, um, you know, the licensing, licensing department can fine you, they can suspend your license, they can revoke your license, they can terminate your license. Um, and if it's bad enough, of course, it will. It, it could lead to termination, and then you can't practice mm. at all anymore. It's against the law to practice without a license here. And in the state of Utah, uh, it, I believe it's a Class A misdemeanor um, that you can be charged with uh, for practicing without a license. But the boundaries are the big one, and that's the one that seems to get the people the most in trouble. And it's, in all honesty, it's probably one of the harder ones as a mm. therapist as well because think about it from this side it once once you're a therapist and everybody generally knows you're a therapist um people are much more willing to open up about whatever they might be experiencing life because they they think they're talking to a professional right or somebody with experience and so they're more willing to share than just with an average neighbor or something yeah. and yeah. um you know they'll want to i'll get regularly like hey you know my 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 kid is going through some things I should send him over to see you. Um, yeah. or, you know, I, maybe I should schedule an appointment with you or so, so-and-so is really struggling with something. Maybe they can come over and, and see you. And, um, I have to turn down people fairly often neighbors and, and family and, and things, um, just because of those dual relationships. Mm. So boundaries is, is, it's an interesting one, but, extremely important yeah yeah i've noticed as well it's, it's not quite the same thing but i've had a couple of conversations with people where um like uh, in a social situation and you know i think i'm reasonable at listening to people anyway but perhaps i'm a bit more aware of active listening skills and what i've noticed is that as soon as you employ some active listening skills or you're just quiet people very quickly open up to you um, in surprising, surprising ways. And I've had to put the brakes on that a couple of times where I've thought, look, we're, we're, you know, we're having a couple of beers and you're, we've been talking for five minutes and now you're telling me about problems that run deep in your family. And I've almost had to pretend that I'm not listening. <laughs> Try and... <laughs> You know, just just steer the conversation out of it and think this is not, you know, it's not a, a good time to be having this conversation. So, and then yeah. another one that was surprising to me, I'll just quickly say, which was um, with our practicing listening skills. This is boundaries, uh, why it's important for the, the client. So there's one particular person that I listened to one week and she opened up very quickly to me about a number of issues. And, you know, I was really like privilege that she would talk to me and everything um but then when the session had finished a couple of days after i almost felt like i wanted to get in touch to see if she was okay and i was like ha ah, that's why you have boundaries you don't you don't do it so it's been a real learning curve for me 
Yeah, and and as you're saying that, it, I mean that that brings up the other the other side of it that I didn't share yet, but it, what you're saying resonates with me so well. Is we get um, attached to the people that come to to see us to do therapy with us, um, and and it would be impossible not to. They are sharing their most vulnerable parts of their life with us, and they don't do that most of the time with anybody else in their lives and so they they of course are attached to us assuming that we have created an environment that it's safe enough for them to share and then we attach to them because they are being so open and so human and so vulnerable that we attach to them and it is very very easy to develop um, an interest in their well-being and want to root for them and encourage them and and think about like i mentioned earlier think about them in between sessions and while i'm at home or while while i'm watching tv or whatever things that that will remind me of them and that's okay because again theme of this of this episode i'm human part of my humanness is to attach but i have to be very very careful to remember exactly what you're saying i'm in a professional capacity, we are not friends. And I have to make sure that we can never cross that barrier because yeah. that is extremely detrimental to the work that they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. But if I'm totally honest, I, that's something that uh, I, I don't worry about it that much, but it's something that I have some concerns about, you know, I, I kind of imagine being in the position and as, as you're telling me about this and, and, and people are being very open with you and you would, you know, grow to like them rooting for them as you said and you, you know you kind of want the best for them and it's like you know you are forming a relationship with that person there's no other word for it and just because it's a therapeutic relationship it's still a human relationship and I'm hoping it's something that I can learn currently from from where I'm looking at it I can't imagine how I could just disconnect from that but I'm, I'm hoping that I'll learn because otherwise it would be impossible to do the job, of course. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's, it's an interesting balance for sure. And it's sometimes it's easier than others. And, um, but it's always a good, con always a, always a good conversation. I'm sure boundaries are going to come up quite a bit yeah. in, in our discussions. So, well, Rich, I don't actually have anything else on, on our little agenda that we wanted to talk about in terms of differences between the two countries, anything that you wanted to share before we uh, wrap up for the session? I just wanted I to- I guess this isn't a session, this is an, an episode. We're not yeah. actually in therapy. So <laughs> anything you want to share before we wrap up the episode? Well, not, not particularly, but I just, you know, kind of want to give a shout out to the people that are um, the, the therapists in the UK, psychotherapists, counselors, whatever you want to call them, they're, you know, they're, they're so committed and a lot of them are highly qualified. And even once they're qualified, they're, they're off doing, um, all sorts of extracurricular qualifications and workshops. And they, you know, they're, they're just so passionate about it and they jump through hoops to be members of these organizations. And, you know, of, of course, there's a, a few bad apples out there that are advertising things that they're not qualified to do and you know that's tragic it's tragic for people when they when they experience um those therapists so so for all the people out there that are doing a good job you know good for you and carry on and hopefully we'll get some regulation at some point 
Yeah, absolutely, Richard. I appreciate you saying that, and um, I feel the same way for for therapists over here. We put in a lot of time and effort, and um, I think people all over the world jump into this with the intention to to try and help people. And um, we're all human too, and we want the best for for everybody that we work with. And so, yeah, yeah. again, yeah, shout out to to everybody that's on that path. Yeah, sure. Well, Rich, should we wrap, wrap this episode up for the day? Yeah, good to talk to you and look forward to talking to you again soon. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, everybody, and uh, looking forward to doing the next one. Take care, everyone.